All right, so we're in Colossians. So two weeks ago, we handled the introduction, and then we dove into the Thanksgiving section that began in verse 3. And we tackled the first half of that Thanksgiving section last week. So that was uh, 3 through 8. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to tackle 9 through 14. At least that is the goal. We'll see how far into that we get because there's some rich language as there is throughout the book of Colossians. Uh, but what I'd like to do first is reread 3 through 8 so we kind of remember where we are as we dive into verse 9. Because it is all the same kind of section of the letter even though there are going to be some differences. Uh, so would somebody volunteer to read verses 3 through 8? All right, thanks, Dave. All right. Thank you. <clears throat> so how does Paul begin that section? Just a quick recap before we dive into the next. Yeah, he's giving thanks. This is a section about giving thanks to God for what he has done. So he gives thanks to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, whenever they pray for the Colossians. Remember, that doesn't mean that every single second of every day they are praying for the Colossians. But whenever they're praying, whenever they're praying for the churches, they're praying for the Colossians. All right. All uh, right. What was the reason for their praying in verse 5? Yeah, the, the faith uh, is really the triad. So it's really 4 and 5. That, that's my mistake on saying that. But what was the triad of those three words we talked about? They kind of run in a circle. They all feed into one another. And depending on what you're talking about, you might say this is the most important. This isn't. But they're all feeding into one another. So what were the three? Faith, love, and hope. So the faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for God and all the saints, and the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. And uh, Paul and Timothy in this section really lay into that hope laid up for you in heaven. That ends up being the driving force for a lot of what's going on here. That hope of glory, that hope of life with Christ eternally. Uh, that's what gives you the energy, so to speak, to continue on. Now, there's also two words in verse 6 that Paul and Timothy used. Uh, as a result of that hope growing in you, something else occurs. Two things. Yeah, fruit and what else? You could also just apply it to the gospel and what it's doing in the world. So bearing fruit and what was the other one? Growing. So growing and bearing fruit. So whether it's you, I mean, you individually are part of that process. The whole church is growing and bearing fruit, but also uh, you as well within that larger body. Uh, so the gospel is producing fruit. Remember, we tied that back to Genesis 128, too, with that cultural mandate. That from the beginning, the purpose of mankind was to subdue the earth and take dominion over, to be fruitful and to multiply. And so what we see is that through Christ's work, through the building up of the church and the establishment and spread of the gospel, that cultural mandate is now being fulfilled. It is in the process of being fulfilled. 
even though it is, in a sense, already been guaranteed uh, because of Christ's work. So we see that fruitfulness going on, and that's really the heart of what Paul and Timothy are giving thanks for in the Colossian church. All right, any questions about the recap and where we're at? All right. So let's read 9 through 14. We'll read the whole chunk first, and then we'll go through and break it down. So somebody else could volunteer to read 9 through 14. Thank you, Patty. All right, so that's the big picture of the rest of the thanksgiving. So let's go back to verse 9 and just look at that uh, first phrase. Uh, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So in a minute we'll break down what what is it that they're praying for in the Colossian church. But first, uh, when did they start praying? Immediately. Immediately starting when the... When they first heard. Now, what did they hear? Right. So they hear that a church is growing, that the gospel has taken root, that people have come to the faith and they're believing. They're trying to walk with the Lord. And since they have heard of that, the establishment of this church, that's what leads to them uh, praying unceasingly. And if you think about the way Paul and Timothy write this, it kind of goes against what often happens. Uh, try to say this phrase correctly. Something that's often said is the, is the squeaky wheel gets the what? Gets the oil or gets the grease, right? It's, what does that mean? Sort of. Uh, it, it's more, okay, so you're ministering in a church or you're just living in a church, living with the other saints, trying to love on the other saints. Who gets your attention more often than not? The squeaky wheel. <laughs> the squeaky. <laughs> Complaints. Whatever's the trouble spot, that's what gets all the attention. It, it takes up a lot of your time to deal with that whatever an issue is. And it's the same in your family. It's the same at work. Whatever that, the, the, Seemingly the most important thing is, or the most, you can even say, I don't want to say this because it seems mean, but I'll just say it anyway. The most obnoxious thing often gets the most attention. The loudest thing gets the most attention. Uh, if you're trying to talk to your spouse and then your kids start screaming, well, it's hard to hear what your spouse is saying. All you can do is listen to the screaming and try to quiet it down. Uh, so the squeaky wheel gets the grease. That's what we often think. So, you know, in many of the letters, Paul's addressing what in a church? Problems. Yeah, he, he writes to the Galatian church. He doesn't even give a Thanksgiving section. Why? <laughs> yeah, they are compromising on the heart of justification by faith alone. They are throwing out the gospel. And so he has to go straight to the issue. 
All right, so that's a little bit where that applies. But here, there's a church doing well, and what some might be tempted to do is, oh, they're doing well, I can focus on something else. But is that what Paul does? No, so they say, we heard about how y'all are doing great, you're loving the Lord, you're believing the gospel, and we're going to pray for you even more. And so it's actually the opposite dynamic taking place. They're doing well, and there's immediately prayers that there will be more fruit, that there will be more growth, more maturity in the church. And so it kind of flips what the worldly paradigm is on its head, that when a church is doing well, that's all the more reason to pray and give thanks and continue to ask God to build them up. Uh, We always focus on the problem spots, which we should to an extent, but we should also be thinking about praying for people who are doing well, for the church that's doing well, to continue flourishing. Uh, So it's just a, a recheck on our motives and what we often do from day to day. Any comments on that before we keep going? <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. So you're counteracting Satan's attempts there too. Yeah. All right. So continuing in verse nine. Uh, so we see that the day we heard they haven't ceased praying, and then they are asking. And asking here is one of two main portions to this section. Uh, So they're going to be asking for various things in the next few verses. So what is the first thing that they're asking for? Not a trick question. Knowledge of God's will. Okay. Proper judgment, yeah. Proper judgment in God's will, that's good. Uh, so yeah, the knowledge of His will filled with His will, that's, that's the first part. Alright, and then there's one other part to this. And you have to go down a couple verses to get to it. So the first major thing they're asking for is that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Then everything below that through 9 and 10 is building on that one idea. It's underlying that one point. But then you get to verse 11 and a new ask is mentioned. Strengthened with power. I'm just going to put strength this time instead of writing something out. Strengthened with power. So you see this kind of flow chart taking place. Um, so those are the two main categories of what they're going to be asking for, that they will be filled with the knowledge of God's will and that they will be strengthened with all power. Okay, so now let's break each of those down. So asking first that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. What is God's will? What is God's will for you from day to day? Yeah. Right. Well, how do you do that? Being his word? Okay, that's good. Why does that help? It's absolutely true. 
Is our food good? Right. It lets us know what his will is. And so how are you going to walk according to the knowledge of his will if you have no idea what his will is? Uh, will is not so magical trying to guess what God wants you to do for the day. And often, especially in teenagers, uh, if you spend, have ever spent any time trying to teach a Bible study to youth and to kids, uh, they think that finding God's will for their life is this magical process where you do this searching. And if you don't search just right, you're going to miss it. And then your whole life's ruined. Or you go to the wrong job. Or, or They just have this idea <laughs> that's really misled, that it's some process by which you have to figure out what God's will is. But when they're doing that, they're kind of missing the main point of what God's will actually is. God's revealed will is what we're called to pursue and live by in Scripture. God doesn't call us to live by his secret will that has not been declared. Uh, There's no command to figure out God's secrets. What does Deuteronomy 29, 29 say? You don't know, flip there. I, I thought somebody might have it memorized. It's one of my favorites, but I guess it's not all that common. My guess is you'll know it once you see it. Right. So I think that's the perfect definition of what God's will is. It's the things he has given to us that he has revealed to us through his word so that we can do what with them? Say, wow, that was cool. And then move on. No? To do it. (laughs) So you know God's will, you know how he expects you to live, and then you seek to live in that way. That is what God's will is for our lives. We're not looking for some secret information. We're looking to what he's given us, and we're seeking to live by it, to apply it to our hearts, to learn more about God through it. So uh, Paul's first prayer is that we will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, isn't it interesting the wording he used, that you will feel God's will deeply in your emotions? He doesn't say that, does he? He says that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And what does that say about our mental abilities and what God expects of us? Or even about how maturity and living according to God's will works? Because he didn't mention emotions and feelings. He mentions knowledge. So what can that tell us? Knowledge is from the Word of God. It's not that emotions have no part to play. They do. But the starting point for understanding God's will is having a knowledge of it. And that means studying the Word. That means knowing the Word. That means knowing what God has said to you. Uh, Just having the right feelings isn't going to fix the problem. You've got to start with the knowledge of God's will. And again, if it's secret, something that you have to divine, then you can't know it. (laughs) So it's knowledge of things revealed in God's will. Or any other comments on that before we continue with that statement? (laughs) Right. Right.
Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well said, and it is something we've all done at some point, whether we were young or older, and we can do it at any time, really. Uh, that's why it's so important. Paul says, filled with the knowledge of his will. Um, we're supposed to know God's will. It's not secret. It's his revealed moral law. It's his revealed word. That's what we're talking about here. That's the starting point. Before Paul says anything else, that's the starting point. Filled with the knowledge of his will. And then the next phrase, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So first, spiritual wisdom. Is that a phrase you all use very often? No. It's not, it's not the most common phrase. We talk about wisdom a lot. We talk about spiritual things a lot. Uh, we talk about spiritual realities and physical realities and comparing and contrasting and all those sorts of things, but we don't often talk about spiritual wisdom. So what do you think it is that Paul and Timothy are getting at here? And if you don't have... Sorry, go ahead. Good. I like that. That's very good. Um, And going along with that, uh, this is going into some language stuff to get there. And that's why this, I don't want to go into the details of how you get there necessarily, unless y'all just want to know. But these words here, these terms uh, seem to be referring back to Exodus in Exodus 31, Exodus 35, first Kings seven, Isaiah 11. Uh, and you don't have to remember those references, but in all those passages, they're talking about the temple or the tabernacle and things in the temple and the tabernacle. And the words are being used in reference to the people who were craftsmen. God gave them special ability in order to do their tasks. And so these same words connect back to him gifting these certain men to build this for the temple or that for the temple, uh, to construct the tabernacle itself. So whatever the area is for these craftsmen, this is a language being used. They're being given these gifts by God's spirit to build up the church, if you will. And so if you connect that to, to, to us, how would being filled with the spiritual uh, wisdom of God help the church? I think it does refer partly to that as well, yeah. Um, and this is it's a difficult, it's not a one-to-one kind of connection here. It's a difficult connection. But I think we're meant to see that as we follow God's will, that is part of how we are building up, being built up and how the church is growing. Is that God is uh, building us up in knowledge of his will, or if you're built up in knowledge of his will, you're going to live a more mature life, a more godly life, right? So as you're built up in those things, the church is being built up. You can't be built up and the church not be built up unless you're not a believer, in which case you're not really being built up, right? So as individuals are built up with the truth, so the church is being built up. And I think that's the connection we should draw there. Uh, again, some of the allusions to that may be a little bit uh, stretching, but it's just odd that Paul and Timothy use this spiritual wisdom line that's really nowhere else used. Uh, this is a very rare term. And so that's the commentators. This is their best guess. Uh, that it's trying to 
to hint back to this kind of temple analogy of God building up the church. And as we move forward, we're going to see a lot more Old Testament references in the rest of this. But did you... Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. And that don't really have time to look at it too much. But in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 4, you don't have to turn there. But therefore, when it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, it's talking about Christ, and he gave gifts to men. And then what are the gifts? Well, you go to verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So I think that's a very good application of it. Uh, I don't think that we can only narrow it to that, but I think that is a huge part of it. I think it also, Paul is speaking to the church as a whole, and so it has to apply to all of us, and yet it can also apply especially to the teachers. So that's how I'll balance that, I'll say. Yeah. Absolutely. And actually, if you go to chapter 2, it's the same words are used again. So go to chapter 2. And so remember, spiritual wisdom and understanding, and you've got knowledge as well there. So kind of a new triad, if you will, of those three words. And then go to chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you see the same words used there. And then, Carol, as you said, as you go into three, what well, we see the practical, what does that look like? Uh, so you can go to all the Scripture and say, well, it looks like following all of this, but even in this letter, there's going to be this is how you obey this. Um, this also feeds forward to that as well, because we talked some in the introduction of this book, that there's people argue about what heresies or what bad ideas Paul and Timothy are arguing against. We don't know if there was one specific one, if it was a bunch of errors, or Paul is just preparing them for possible errors down the road. We're not exactly sure. But there's all these ideas of Gnosticism and false or proto-Gnosticism at this time. These false beliefs that say there's this secret knowledge that you have to have in order to be saved. You join our group and we'll give you the secret to salvation. Okay, That's the promise of Gnosticism, essentially. But then what does this say? Is it for some secret group? Is it some secret will, secret knowledge you're seeking? No, it's the revealed word of God. You have it already. You don't need to go to some secret group. And so I'm not saying Paul was directly speaking against some Gnostic or proto-Gnostic group, but it goes against exactly what they teach, um, that everything you need is right here. That's the point. All right, so spiritual wisdom and understanding. Any final comments on that? All right, well, that's the first ask, is that you be filled with this knowledge of God's will. Now, what's the purpose of that? What's the purpose of being filled with this knowledge of God's will? Knowledge and understanding, the revealed will, what is the point? 
So that you, yeah, right. So look at verse 10. That is the answer. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthily of the Lord. So this goes directly against any idea of just you want to be the biggest, you know, what is that term, egghead in the room? You want to be the biggest nerd, know-it-all, obnoxious person in the room? That is not the point of knowledge, of true knowledge. Um, if you are using it to puff yourself up, then, and without any hint of humility, then you don't really understand it. Because the true understanding of God's word comes with humility. Because um, you know just how pathetic you were before Christ and even in Christ how dependent you are. And so if you come at it with this idea of just being a know-it-all, you haven't really understood the truth. That's my argument anyway. Uh, so the purpose of all this wisdom, spiritual wisdom and understanding, is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Yeah, I think so. I think that's a good way to summarize it. Um, what would it mean to walk unworthily of the Lord? Look at the negative. Does God approve walking unworthily of him? No, I mean, we just need to expand upon that word just in the sense of to walk worthy of the Lord, meaning is something that he says is good, something that he is pleased with, something that he wants you to do. Uh, something that meets his standards, if you want to put it that way. Uh, so the point, the purpose of this knowledge and wisdom is that you might walk in a manner that the Lord approves of, that he gives his blessing on. So that's what it means to walk worthy of the Lord. And then what's the next phrase there? Yeah, fully pleasing to him. And that's kind of just what we were talking about, that to walk worthy of the Lord, well, what does that mean? It's a way that's fully pleasing to him, a way that he accepts and, uh, like I said, gives his blessing upon. Any other comments on worthy or pleasing there? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, is, I mean, is, how can we please him? Is that because our lives are perfect now? Without sin, without failure? No, there's failure, there's sin. And yet, what have our good works, what happens to them before they go to God's throne? When he looks at our life, why can he see our good works and say, well done, my good and faithful servant? He put them there for us to do? Yeah, through whom? Just completing that idea. Through Christ, right. So he puts them there, he sets them up, he prepares them beforehand is the way Titus talks about it, that we might walk in them. Well, everything we do, just like our salvation in general, our works part of that, are presented washed and clean by the blood of Christ before the throne. So just as we are presented white and blameless, pure because of Christ, so our works are too. Um, and that's why even the best of our works on our own are tainted with sin. And yet Christ can take those offerings. He can wash them clean, remove what is impure, and present it as a clean offering before God. So that not only are we accepted, but even our works are accepted as good works. 
And sometimes we don't think in those terms. Sometimes we forget that. Um, it's similar to, to uh, being encouraged by the fact that we will be rewarded in heaven. That's not a bad thing. Austin was, oh, we, we don't deserve anything, so we don't talk about it. No, God's promised you blessings for doing good things. He's promised you uh, riches and glory. So pursue good living for God. Uh, and it's the same idea here. Uh, your works are carried before God, and that's a good thing for us to remember. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, and along with that can be the, the confession, if you will, when our works were impure. But also offering what was good in that and saying, Christ, cleanse these works, please. Uh, you know, when you help somebody and part of you really doesn't want to, but you know God has called you to it. And so even though you're not in a good mood or whatever, you choose to love that person because that's what you know Christ wants of you. And so is it an impure work because you have something being held back in your heart? Yeah. But can it still be offered to, to Christ? Yes. Um, and then he'll cleanse the work. Uh, I don't know about y'all. That brings me a lot of hope. <laughs> All right. What was my next thought here? So fully pleasing to him. All right. Now there's two descriptions of fully pleasing in that worthy. So there's worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And then there's two words that appear again. We've actually already seen them both. Right. Bearing fruit and growing. So what does it mean to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord, that is fully pleasing to him? Well, we're getting more of a description. It's bearing fruit in what way? Again, look at the text. The answer's there. I heard it. In every good work. So we're bearing fruit in every good work. So everything we do that is seeking to glorify God, seeking to serve one another, seeking to share the gospel with the lost, all those things are falling under this bearing good fruit, this building up of the church, this uh, uh, adding adornments to the temple, if you will. It's all building up God's uh, church. All right, so that's the first, is this bearing fruit. And then what's the second part? End of verse 10. Yeah. So how are these two words already used in this chapter before this? And what did we connect them to? What was the gospel doing in verse 6? Increasing. That's one word. And then there's another. Yeah, so we see both words there. The gospel is bearing fruit and it's increasing or growing throughout the world and even at Colossae among those believers, right? And now you go forward again, uh, and part of how we walk in a way worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, is that we bear fruit in every good work, and we increase in the knowledge of God. So what's at work in the church for those two things to occur? You can connect it back to the end of 5 and beginning of 6 again. The gospel. Perfect. Yes. That's the answer I wanted. The gospel. The gospel's at work. <laughs> The gospel is growing and producing fruit in the church. 
And so you see the connection in the first part of the prayer, and now in the second portion of the prayer, you see those same terms brought back, re-explained, and expanded upon. Well, how is it that it's growing and bearing fruit? Well, it's growing us in good works, and it's increasing our knowledge of God. The two essential things that must accompany the true planting of the gospel. Because if those things aren't occurring, then has the gospel really been planted at all? I'd argue no. And so we see that growth taking place and moving forward. All right, any questions about that? Right, right. Yeah, the word has to be preached um, in a way that is pure. (laughs) Not perfectly, because humans can't do that, but God can. God can work perfection through his word. Oh, yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, and... and Teenagers, <laughs> I, I keep picking on teenagers today for some reason. Uh, but have you ever been, if you ever went on any mission trips or work projects or anything like that as an adult or a youth or whenever in your life, you'll always see some youth doing things to, to try to prove they love God. And it's that same kind of idea. They want to be filled with the good works and the declaring. Like I remember one guy talking about, he just wanted to go out in the middle of the camp and scream, I love Jesus in West Virginia. This was many years ago, but... I was just wondering, what does, what, who does that help, though? What's the point of that? But anyway, but that's what he wanted to do. So he was, you know, had passion and zeal. But what was the second part of verse 10 there, of what we were talking about, is increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, I mean, you should increase in your love, yes, but the point is to increase in understanding, too. It's not just to have the right feeling or the right, uh, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not based on emotions. Again, Paul doesn't list emotions. He lists knowledge, just like before he listed understanding. Um, right. 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 And we mentioned it earlier. Emotions are important. But they're not the primary. They're not the initial or the first uh, part. Um, do you go through the book of Psalms? Are there emotions? There's a full ray of human emotions in the Psalms. You go to Lamentations. Are there emotions there? Yeah, if you want a book about grieving, go to Lamentations, right? Ecclesiastes, there are emotions in there. Now, that's from a very different perspective. But nonetheless, there's a lot of emotions there. Um, and so emotions are good, but they must be informed by what? 
the word and in obedience or uh, in subjection to the word. Meaning if your emotion does not match up what scripture teaches about that emotion, then it is an improper emotion. It is a wrong emotion. Um, And so we have to keep our emotions in check. Therefore, we increase in the knowledge of God to know how to keep them in check. Because otherwise we won't know what a good emotion is, what a bad emotion is. Um, And then we're just all over the place with no guidance. God's given us his word, which teaches us what a proper emotion is. And therefore, we can increase in the knowledge of God, even in our emotions. That's a good thing. All right. Verse 11. All right. Now we're moving into that second part here. So Paul and Timothy are asking. So first they ask that they... Colossians would be filled with God's will. Now in verse 11, they're asking that the Colossians may be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. All right. So first clause there. May you be strengthened with all power. What power? Knowledge is power. That's good. Yeah. So connecting it right back to what came before. Yeah, yeah, that's a good connection too. Any other ideas? Power for what? Why do you need power? In the context of what we've just talked about, what good is this power? Yeah, definitely. So you're looking forward in the text. Absolutely. The power is providing those things. It also goes backward. It goes both directions. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it is a new request, and y'all are right, mostly looking forward to those descriptions. I think that's correct. But it also does play back into what we've just talked about, too. Um, that power is going to come from a knowledge of God's will. That power is going to come from trying to seek and walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord. So that power connects backwards, but it does connect forwards as well, because we're getting more of a description of what it means to walk in this way. Well, you're strengthened with all power, uh, and that is God's power. Uh, given to you that you might live worthily of him. I think that's what we're feeding forward with. Now, the word power, that's uh, dunamis is the, the normal Greek way to say it. But it comes from the, that's where we get the word dynamite. So power, <laughs> explosive power. Okay, maybe not quite explosive power, but power. Uh, that you might be strengthened with all power. Where does the power come from? From God. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think we're meant to see a connection of those two words. So, I mean, where do you get the power? Well, you go to his glorious might, his overwhelming Almighty power is where he gives you your power from. It's not power in your own strength. It's not power in your own abilities. It is the power of God working in you. The power of God in you. 
can't remember what verse that's from, but uh, that's a verse somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I know, good, right? Um, that you will be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. That is the source. That is where it comes from. Meaning, if you're not walking in dependence on the Lord, if you're walking on your own, how are you to be filled with the power of God? If you're not drawing from the Word, if you're not walking by faith, do you have any access to this power of God in your life? No, and you shouldn't expect to. Um, It comes from dependence on God, not you. And so it's according to His glorious might. And then we get those uh, qualifiers or descriptions you all mentioned. For all endurance and patience with joy. So those are the things that are provided by this power. Endurance, patience, with joy. Now, is it just patience with joy? What is the joy modifying? Endurance and patience. So for all endurance and patience, both with joy. And so you don't have to endure without joy, uh, but then you can be patient with joy. No, you have joy as you do both because of the power of God. So even though that's not always easy, but as we're walking with God, he gives us uh, patience and joy or patience and endurance. And he enables us to have joy even through those things. Comments on that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> it would be nice, and yet, why does God not do that? Why does He not just remove the problem for us and never even have us face Him? That's how we grow. That's how He strengthens us. That's how He matures us. That's how He drives out the love for the world and ourselves. That is so prevalent and rooted in our hearts, even as believers. And so it's only as he breaks that old love that we can grow in love to Christ. And what's the difference between endurance and patience here? Do you all see any differences there? If so, what are they? Right. Yeah, they are they are very closely connected. Um, you endure and you must be patient at the same time. So I mean part of enduring is being patient, part of being patient is that you are enduring, right? So you can't really disconnect them. Uh they're really pretty much synonyms. Uh strong overlap in meaning. Uh, it's really hard to pull out much that's different about the two words. And so again, when there's two words used like that that are positives that essentially mean the same thing. What's the point? Why are both stated? What was that? Pay attention. Yeah, good. Emphasis is another way to put it. Pay attention. Emphasis. Hammer the point home because we're slow to learn. We're slow to listen when we should be quick to listen. Uh, So repetition is always helpful for us in our minds. Uh, Endurance and patience with joy. Now, what does joy look like in those situations? When you're enduring trials, when you're patiently waiting on something. What does joy look like in that situation? Does that mean you have to be the happiest person ever to step foot in the room, that you have a smile from ear to ear, you can get punched in the face and you'll still have that smile? Is that what that means? 
comfort. Good. Bob? You, you think joy is the result? Okay. Okay. Yeah? Normally, it's once you've... Uh, <laughs> It's like there's a part of every trial, it seems like, at least this is my own heart. Maybe y'all are, are holier than me. Well, you probably are. But anyway, uh, where you're, like, you're kicking against the trial for a long time, and you're fighting against it, you're mad about it, and then eventually you just give it up to God, and you say, I'm done, I submit to this, I understand you have a purpose in this. And that's typically, for me at least, where the joy comes in. Before that, it's me being stubborn. <laughs> but then after that point, at some point, God does enough work on me that I give up fighting. And I say, all right, you've called me to this. I accept that, um, and I'll rely on you for strength through it. And that's, for me, where the joy comes in. And I think comfort's a good word for it. It's God is in control of it. God has called you to it. God will carry you through it. Um, I think it's that assurance, maybe, certainty of uh, it being Christ's purpose uh, for you, for your good. I think that's where that joy comes in. Anyone else have any thoughts on what that joy looks like? Right, right. Right. Yeah, joy, yeah, typically does come at the end of the trial. (laughs) But some trials are very long, and then God can, I mean, if you submit yourself to God and walk by faith, you'll have joy the whole way through. It's when we're stubborn and hard-hearted that we don't get the joy. Uh, that's when we're not experiencing that because we're not enduring with patience. You could put it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. That's what, well, God must have a purpose for it, so we're just going to sing praise. (laughs) I wish my heart would be quicker to do that. Maybe in years' time. We'll see. All right, so moving into verse 12. So we're kind of reminded of what Paul and Timothy are doing here. So they were asking. uh, That was kind of the first part of this. Now we're moving into the second part of this section. So first they're asking. Now they're going to do what in verse 12? We're going to give thanks. So if you can't read it, that says Thanksgiving. All right. So what are they giving thanks for? First, who are they giving thanks to, maybe? (laughs) Right. And so there was faith in the Colossian church. The Colossian church was growing, producing fruit. Why didn't Paul thank them? Does he thank them anywhere? He does not. He only thanks God ever. In pretty much all his letters, he gives thanks for qualities in Christians and churches, but it is to God that he gives thanks. And it's not because the people, it's not because Paul wouldn't say thank you to somebody if they held the door open or something like that. It's because what does Paul recognize about every gift, every good thing in every church and every believer? Come, all comes from God. And so if it comes from God, you give thanks to God for that gift, for that grace. 
And so Paul gives thanks to the Father. Now, specifically, what is he giving thanks for here? It's about the Colossians, but in what way? What's the first phrase there? Yeah, you are qualified. Now, what, what does that mean? That's not a phrase or a word we see that often used in Scripture. Qualified. Predestined, yeah, I think it's closely connected to that. What else? No, I mean, that's pretty much it, to meet the requirements of. So, who's doing the qualifying, though? Okay, silly example, NASCAR. What do you do before the race? What does every driver have to do in their car before the actual race? Qualifying. Now, who's doing the work in that qualifying? The driver in the car. They have to put up the best lap time if they want to start at the front of the pack, right? The driver is the active participant in that qualifying. It is up to them whether or not they're going to be qualified as the top driver or the top five or whatever you're looking to achieve there. Here, in this text, who is doing the qualifying? The Father. It's not the Colossians. They didn't pass some test. They didn't qualify themselves. God qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God is the one doing the work here. And so often we want to look at the, the work of the saints. So often we want to think about your individual faith or what you have promised to do or what your good works are instead of looking to God who has provided all those things and called you in the first place. And so here we need to be very careful to note that Paul is giving thanks that God has qualified them. They didn't do any great work on their own to merit coming into the church or becoming a church. God has called them. That goes back to the election predestination angle. God has qualified them. Now, what has he qualified them to do? Yeah. So they're sharing in the inheritance. Now, if you're an Old Testament Jew and you read inheritance, what are you going to think about? The promised land. So God's rich promises that he has set aside for his special people. Is Paul writing to the Jews? Not just Jews. There probably were some Jews, but it was mostly a Gentile church. He's speaking to uh, Gentile believers. And yet he uses a very Old Testament, very Jewish term to explain what they're looking forward to. So if you're a Jew reading this or you're a Jew in the church surrounded by Gentiles, then this would be a shocking statement to hear. Us, we just read across it and don't even pay attention. But this was revolutionary to a Jew because God has now brought in this whole other people, whole other nations into the church. And that was something that would have been absolutely shocking to an Old Testament Jew. Now, should they have known it was coming? I would argue yes, but they didn't. They, they more or less missed it. And then here we are where all the saints in the church, whether Jew or Gentile, are sharing in this inheritance of the saints. Now, saints, is that an Old Testament word or a New Testament word? New Testament? That's right. <laughs> but it's also an Old Testament word. We don't see it in our English versions, but the word there, if you go to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, the saints, the, the, the Old Testament believers are called saints all throughout. That's just the common word for them. So this was not a new term for the New Testament. 
It's just in the English, that's where we see the word appear, our English word saints. But this was not a new term either, so it closely goes with that inheritance word. A common Old Testament word, one all Jews would have known as referring to them if they were following God, now it refers also to anybody in the church. So these saints have been given a share in the inheritance together. Then what's the description? Saints of what? The end of verse 12. I just love that description. Saints of light. Not darkness, not death. Um, not even just of, of good things, of light. Pure, unbridled light. And then that quickly feeds into verse 13. We're running out of time, so we're going to move a little quicker, and then we might touch on this a little more next week. But verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So it's funny, you end being called saints of light or saints in light at the end of verse 12. And then we are hearkened back to where we were delivered from. Where we were delivered from. Yeah, we're delivered from this domain of darkness to the light. And so on the front end, you have light. You're called back to where you were. And then we're transferred to this kingdom of his beloved son. And who's that referring to? Jesus, yeah. In whom we have redemption, uh, the forgiveness of sins. And so we'll, we'll break down verse 13 uh, more next week. Um, there's way too much in there to try to tackle in a few minutes. So any final questions or comments before we call it for the day? <laughs> I want to say I saw the same thing somewhere. Yeah, yeah, uh, we would be. Yes. Yes. And mysteries, yeah, in this book of Colossians, it pops up several times. Um, yeah, and mystery, depending on how Paul's using it and what context, it can just refer to the gospel. It can refer to the Gentiles being included in the gospel. It can refer to the word that was once not fully revealed, but now has been fully revealed when Christ came. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of ways it can be used, um, and we'll have to see how it's used in Colossians as we go forward. Um, but yeah, mystery can refer to many things, actually. But always, at the, at the core, it's always the gospel, if you want to put it that way. Other? Yep. Right. Yeah. That you're fully sharing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, wait a minute, we were first. <laughs> yeah, I think it would have been. Definitely. All right, any others before I close this in prayer? All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have revealed your will to us, that you have given us your word, and that by it, 
Uh, you've showed us what we need to do in order to live in a way that is worthy, a way that is pleasing to you. Not in the sense of that we are going to do it perfectly now, not in the sense that even our best works aren't going to be tainted with some amount of sin, uh, but that through Christ, what we do offer up can be cleansed and presented before your throne as a holy offering to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that. We thank you for calling us, or, or for, for dying for us, for redeeming us, for delivering us, um, and for cleansing us and our good works. Uh, Lord, help us to, to live lives that are worthy and pleasing to you. And even as we go into our worship service, I do pray that you would help us to have that mindset of how we can live in a way that is pleasing to you because of what we know about you from your word. So Lord, help us with that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name.